inside Google, like YouTube took a long time for its business to really click. Like there was some initial frustration for, for several years and you can go back and find a lot of press reports about how YouTube was sort of uh, serially like unprofitable, right? And kind of a drag on, on Google for a long time. I'm Chris Hill and that's Mark Bergen. He's a reporter for Bloomberg and author of the upcoming book, Like, Comment, Subscribe, Inside YouTube's Chaotic Rise to World Domination. Dylan Lewis caught up with Bergen to talk about the rocky road that led YouTube to become one of the most successful tech acquisitions in history, as well as the complicated relationship YouTube has with the people who create video content, and how the platform has an uncanny knack for being a part of world-changing events. So YouTube is kind of Forrest Gump-like in that there are all these seminal moments along the way over the last 15 or so years where it is there, it is a part of the conversation, or it's where the conversation is happening. And one of the things I was kind of struck by was you're embedding these videos as these kind of reminders of what happened on the platform and what was important on the platform. But that very act, the idea that content could be from over there and then brought here onto a web page is something that YouTube kind of conditioned us to accept and really made possible on the internet. Yeah, totally. I love that Forrest Gump comparison. This was, I, I think I mentioned it earlier in the book that like JavaScript, that that the basic YouTube sort of basic technical infrastructure that you could watch uh, their videos on other sites was pretty revolutionary at the time. And MySpace, believe it or not, was like, one of the thing that really kicked off YouTube's popularity and the so its first it started kind of its beta version. The site went live in like uh, mid two thousand five uh, when MySpace was was hugely popular and MySpace didn't have video, uh, and so it became this thing where you YouTube uh, a lot of early YouTubes and employees too were like trying to um, seed YouTube videos in the comments for MySpace, which was where a lot of like early uh, users discovered the site. And I think that that portability, where some like a lot of the other web video sites at the time didn't have that, uh, including Google Video, which was like the forgotten competitor uh, and a major reason why YouTube won. Yeah, I think one of the YouTube insiders that you quote in the book called it the video scaffolding of the internet. And mm -hmm. it might not have been obvious that that's what it was in the moment, but now you think about it and it's it's the go-to place for most people when they're looking for video content. And it's also, you know, if you're a creator, whether it's something that you're trying to build, you know, a platform on YouTube with, or just trying to get a video up so that you can get it on another webpage, it's the go-to for how people do that. For sure. I think that has like a double-edged sword for, for YouTube. It's amazing, right? It's now you're seeing that with, with podcasts, right? Where YouTube is making this big push into podcasting and, and in part because it's already been there. Like I think a lot of YouTubers have podcasts and they just like upload their podcasts on YouTube and those do really well. And, and that's just, it's just another example of this repository that becomes more complicated for, as a content moderation, but it also becomes, you know, YouTube's currency is watch time and, and overall views. And like, that's what they share with advertisers. And so like, that's just continued to climb in part because of, of, of how it exists as sort of the default place where, where people upload things and where people expect to, to kind of go search for video. 
it's interesting to track how the platform has decided to chase those metrics over time because there was a time where that YouTube homepage was curated by uh, individuals. There was there was a team focused on doing that, and uh, technology kind of quickly took over. You know, and that's not really the case anymore. And and I think you did a great job in the book of just detailing that development over time, the resistance to it, and now just the the kind of acceptance that we have, even though there are all these limitations that also kind of come with it. Yeah, absolutely. I think there was what I found was most fascinating is the sort of alternative histories of like what YouTube could have been. And a lot of it is is this debate about sort of curation versus uh, algorithms. And I think it's most acutely actually felt in the like YouTube Kids, which is the example where like when they launched YouTube Kids in 2015, it was a separate app, didn't really curate it. They had these massive headaches. And now they're being much more aggressive. That's an example where they are like the, the one place where the company is really like sort of white labeling and being very careful about what sort of uh, videos go in there. And in part, like I think that there's there's a sort of a missed opportunity. You can you could argue that there's a huge business opportunity that kind of blew in some sense around kids and education, and still might like that. That's certainly not something they've lost, but uh, in in part because of the way they leaned in really hard on the sort of algorithmic free for all. You mentioned the alternate history, and I'm curious. I think, to some extent, what allowed YouTube to be YouTube is that it started out agnostic. It wasn't the property of someone else who had their own tech bloat and all of these other strategic things that they're working towards. Do you think it it could have thrived, or that a video provider could have thrived from any of the existing big tech companies, or did it did it kind of have to come from someone who didn't already have its own property on the internet? Yeah, I mean, these are always fun because we can like say anything and <laughs> not be proven wrong, right? <laughs> um, I mean, like there is a there's a, there's a there's an example which is Google Video. So you know, I, and I didn't really until I went back and researched the book. Like Google Video sort of launched initially, it was like very careful. They were just trying to do like their their initial sort of service was like a, an online cable box, right? And they had like basically like they had like basketball games on like a day later or something, and like CBS. You know, it wasn't super super um like fingers on the pulse of culture and but they eventually went you know part of when when youtube started taking off google video was like shifted strategy and was like okay we're going to user generated content and it didn't go anywhere and and i think a major reason why google bought youtube was because google video wasn't working right the buyer build thing and they tried to build it and they ended up buying it which was a really smart move for google i mean probably one of the most successful tech acquisitions of all time yeah, I I think it's hard to argue. It's it's probably in the top ten, if not the top <laughs> three, maybe. I mean, in twenty two thousand six, Google announced it was buying YouTube for I think one point seven billion. In the most recent quarter, YouTube drove over seven billion in revenue, tens of billions of revenue uh, in the last year. Do you think that Google had any sense that that was the potential for this property at the time? You know, I think. Um... Eric Schmidt was was CEO at the time, and there's this anecdote that he could have, you know, like the price they were talking about was six hundred around six hundred million, and 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 Schmidt was willing to like bump up an extra billion or something. I don't. So I do think they were fixated on it because of its search potential, which is you know, I, I, by all measures, YouTube is is still the world's second biggest search engine behind Google, right? And people don't often talk about the fact that Google has the two biggest search engines in the world. I I certainly don't think that that they saw that that sort of have the, the foresight of what it was going to be. I mean, you know, like th- was it less than six months later, they got sued by Viacom for a billion dollars. Um, you could argue that they certainly saw some uh, legal problems ahead, but Google certainly didn't see that 
coming. I think there was probably an expect like for people inside YouTube, it took inside Google, like YouTube took a long time for its business to really click. Like there was some initial frustration for, for several years. And you can go back and find a lot of press reports about how YouTube was sort of uh, serially like unprofitable, right? And like, and, and kind of a drag on, on Google for a long time. It makes sense to some extent. The challenge that they were trying to solve was so massive. I mean, the idea that you could host any video content you wanted, so long as it you know reached their their terms of service and their terms of use, and that that content you know would be moderated to some extent, so that users would have a, a good experience, one that was conforming, and one that advertisers would be willing to participate in. There are so many pieces. I guess it's a it's a three uh, legged stool thing, and and getting all of those things to work together is a very very tough thing to do. Yeah, I think that's been what. Is sort of lost in some ways about the comparison between you know I, th- I think YouTube straddles is where it's not really quite social it's not quite streaming right it's it's, it's like a little bit of both it's not the same of, as Facebook and and Twitter largely because it has this massive sort of creator uh, base which is a huge advantage I think the world of social media is moving in this direction all right like look at it like Instagram looks a lot more like YouTube and it wants to look like that I mean and TikTok obviously is like you know, your social feeds are less friends and family and more like influencers and creators, which is, uh, you know, un- for these platforms, like hopefully unlocking the next uh, a big revenue stream. But I think, you know, I don't think we spend enough time about like YouTube went through a lot of headaches and there's a lot of complications in the creator economy that, that TikTok's, I think, certainly going through right now. I'm curious, amateur creators were really the lifeblood of YouTube early on. And they continue to be some of the biggest personalities and, and channels on the platform. But there's always been a little bit of a tension between the individuals that make content for YouTube and the commercial interests of the platform. And that's really the the interest of advertisers, but also more traditional media brands. How, how would you characterize that dynamic over time and, and kind of where it sits now? Yeah, that's a really that's a really great tension, and and, and I like I think spent a lot of time in the book talking about that because it went through a lot of like twists and turns. I mean, and one thing that's sort of interesting that I don't think enough people appreciate is like YouTube it birthed the creator creator economy for sure. Like 2007 is when it started making payments to creators, which is super early. But for a long time, the company didn't see creators as sort of the central vehicle for their business. Like their early business team was like, we need to get studios and TV networks onto YouTube. And like, and then, and there was a big push, like we need to get like, so we need to get the stars to like come onto YouTube. Right. Because it was like the sense that advertisers needed to see familiar faces. They needed to see like a listers and like premium material. There was so much of an effort around premium, like sort of, Funny to think in in now, but at the time when Hulu launched, it was like a nightmare scenario for for YouTube, right? Because like Hulu came out of the gate being like we are the premium online video destination, and then there was basically like uh, essentially saying like YouTube is not premium like for advertisers, and and advertisers believed that for a long time. You know, I think there was a, a turning point around like 2014 when it became obvious that YouTube creators were in many ways more popular. Than like celebrities, conventional celebrities. Oh, I don't think it's a stretch to say like they created the modern influencer perspective, like the idea that you are interesting, that you can and should be broadcasting your life. Absolutely, and that was not given, and neither was I think something that's really fascinating with like a lot of the like OG YouTubers 
is they started when the, there was no guarantee of money. There was like, right. There was no idea that you could make money off of YouTube or online. There was no sense about being an influencer. Like that's a really relatively new category. And even, you know, the, the sort of, um, uh, your listeners are familiar with, with, uh, multi-channel networks, right? Like the big boon and sort of like the YouTube studios that happened like a decade ago. And many of them is like kind of imploded, but that was still this novel way of, oh, we can build out sort of conventional Hollywood agents and networks around online talent. Um, now you're seeing, I think, a, a second sort of mature wave of that, but that's still a really nascent category. And, and like, it's still, I think it's being proven out in like, but like Mr. Beast is a great example. Like Mr. Beast has like a, basically a giant media company under him now, but you know, there's not a lot of YouTuber stars that, that have that. I think it's funny. You use uh, dogs on skateboards as kind of like a, a catch-all phrase when you're talking about some of the early content on the platform. And it's it's been so cool to see the quality of content, even from individual creators, really blossom and become incredibly high quality while still kind of maintaining that personality that that is so core to the relationship with audiences. You mentioned Hulu before, and what's interesting is YouTube is basically dogs on skateboards and Hulu. They've managed to figure out how to be both something that is for everyone and a streaming service. They have, they have a paid model, they have an ad-free one, and they've kind of been able to have their cake and eat it too. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Although, I mean, I think there's, you know, one thing we haven't touched on is is they have made a big a recent pivot in their strategy, right? So it was around 2014 when they started doing originals with YouTube creators. And it was basically like their version of House of Cards, right? It was like taking on Netflix and Amazon. You, they've had some a, a few successes from that, but that program largely didn't catch on. Uh, you know, was really I think is a, a, a fascinating. You know, how many people are like I, I, they've put out some numbers. Like they don't disclose revenue about subscriptions. Like they have YouTube has uh, Hank Green is a YouTuber that said this before, so I I'll credit him for this idea. But YouTube has the biggest army of influencers on the world, right? And how often do you hear YouTubers pointing their audience to subscribe to YouTube Premium? Very rarely, right? In, in part because I, the assumption is that the, the that the the margins they get from their advertising business is way better than sort of competing with Netflix and Disney and HBO Max and everybody else for subscribers. So they've certainly pivoted away from the original. They shut down the originals program. Now they're purely into like shorts and commerce and sort of competing with TikTok and Instagram. But I, I think I think you're absolutely right that they they can be like YouTube is very good at being all things to all people are trying to be. Uh, but they've made some strategic decisions that that show where they they've don't necessarily have the strength of of other platforms. Yeah, I think it's incredible to me that they are able to make amateur content work. They couldn't quite make it work with super high quality names, big time names, Hollywood names, and yet they are in a spot where you know they're getting incredibly well produced content from Vox or from Crash Course or for any of these channels that essentially have studio level productions. But it's it's not quite what we're used to from cable or big budget Hollywood. Yeah, that's been. I mean, that's been a bumpy ride, right? Like there was a really interesting period and talked to a lot of creators uh, like around 2015, 2016. And there was this big push to, to, for YouTube sort of, you know, one thing I, I take a step back and like, there's a lot of been a lot of debate about like the algorithm and YouTube, right, how it drives viewers. But I think what's equally interesting is how the YouTube algorithm drives creators and like what kind of, like what kind of actual content and videos they make. 
and so there was a there was a shift around 2015 to do sort of not just get the the more extended watch time, but to actually deliver like daily viewers. And so like you, there's a really um, interesting moment there where like a lot of YouTubers are like we don't have the sort of capacity to pump out high quality videos every single day, but like Jimmy Kimmel can, right? Like you know TV networks can because they're sort of they're built up that way. And so I think YouTube's a lot of YouTuber creators, I think pretty fairly, were like, wow, the platform is tilted to benefit like traditional media. I, mean, I think, and in, in YouTube's defense, like you know, the, the it, there's like this, it's years long tradition that like YouTubers can go on and criticize YouTube, and YouTube kind of takes it. <laughs> but I, I think you know you you mentioned Vox, like Vox is a is a venture capital funded media company, right? Like those ones sometimes tend to have a a leg up on like independent creators. Yeah, it makes sense. And I, I ran you know our our YouTube channel here at the Motley Fool for a while, and you know it's it's a little different when you're working with resources like you know an in house multimedia team, you know an existing base of people who know your brand and, and appreciate your brand, and you know are, are on some of your email lists. Building a, a critical audience is much easier when you already have all those tools. And I can understand how you know a creator might look at all that and say, "Well, how, how am I supposed to compete with these guys?" Yeah, yeah. And I think I mean YouTube has gotten better from my understanding with creators, but it's still tilted towards like they have senior partner managers that they work with creators of certain size. And so in many ways, like it's sort of structurally set up to give you more benefits and handholding the larger you get. There's this uh, concept that comes up in the book that I, that I want to talk through and it's joke threat obvious. And it's this this motto, but also kind of these chapters that delineate the development of YouTube over time. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I thought that one, that one came from Shashir Mahotra, who's like a former um, YouTube VP. This is what he kind of told his his troops. And it was, I think, I think it was an old like Microsoft saying, do right. It's like, and I may butcher it here, but like sort of first they treat you, you're sort of business rivals, right? First you're seen as a joke, then you're seen as a threat, and then you become obvious. And he thought, I think rightly, like it sort of maps pretty well to YouTube's development where you had like the dogs on skateboard phase. Like YouTube was kind of this joke. And in, in, like, I think what's really interesting is like inside Google, it was sort of like, like the, people call it like the JV team, right? Like it was um, not for a long time, it was like not a place that people wanted to work inside Google necessarily. And I think some of that was like literally because they didn't have like nice amenities in their office, but, but it, because it wasn't, it wasn't seen as like a serious, a serious business. And it, it wasn't as like sort of moonshotty as self-driving cars, et cetera. And then, you know, the next phase of that is the sort of threat. And then there's the obvious phase where like everything you do kind of works. And I think YouTube, there's an argument that they kind of went through that and that I talk about in the book, they sort of felt like that phase around like 2014, 2015, when things started to click, which really was when the wheels fell apart right, right in, in the Trump era. Yeah. What, one of the things I, I think is interesting is I, I would look at them and say, like, you're as a consumer, you're in the obvious phase right now where it your your path to success is so clear you're ubiquitous everyone knows who you are and you're the the clear destination for people that are creating and and want online presence but even with that and even being at that kind of graduated level youtube is frantically fighting for competition eyeball hours with the likes of instagram facebook tiktok and conventional streaming like the the battle is not over even though they've reached yeah. that level yeah totally yeah, I think, I mean, I do think that this and this is part of like Silicon Valley culture is you always sort of see yourself as an underdog. Like I think YouTube, you know, for a long time, it saw itself as a, as an underdog to, to 
old, old traditional media to the Viacoms of the world. Um, you know, it was an underdog to TV. It was an underdog to Facebook, right? Facebook's business was bigger at one point and still is like overall. But like that was sort of, I had this chip on the shoulder where it was like this insurgent underdog. And I think some of the, the dizzying part of the past few years for for companies like Google is like, oh, we're not the underdogs anymore, right? And and there, and I think that that's the people inside the company are aware of that. You know, now they're I, I certainly the TikTok is like a real uh, substantial competitive threat, and in, in a new way, not just for viewers and and eyeballs, but actually for creators, which I think is something that YouTube hasn't faced before. And you know, the, if you talk to their business team, though, like the the still thing they're striving for is like share of TV market, right? And and like that's where the bull case for for YouTube is like that money for advertising is still moving from uh, TV to streaming and to digital. And you know, I think there's a lot of interesting questions now of like that Netflix is getting in the ads game, right? Like that introduces a, a new layer of competition that YouTube probably has to respond to. I, I can't help but draw parallels between now Alphabet, then Google's acquisition of YouTube, and now Meta, then Facebook's purchase of Instagram. You know, at, at the time, people couldn't believe that they were paying what they were for them. They've proven to be great acquisitions. But even in spite of that, I think we've seen in the last, you know, 12 months, certainly, but maybe the last couple of years, they've really started imitating some of the other features from other providers in order to stay relevant and kind of stay where people are and what they're interested in. Yeah, I think there's some really, I mean, um, my, my colleague Sarah Fryer wrote a really great book about Instagram in 2020. And like, I think there's some obviously some key differences. One is that the founders of Instagram, I think, had just had more like personality and like, uh, personality isn't the right word, but like a real stronger presence, right? Um, and there's a clear sense there that like Facebook over time just started to like absorb everything about Instagram. I mean, Google, to its credit, like Google would never, I mean, very unlikely that that ever like, you know, you're going to go to YouTube and it's like brought to you by Google, right? Like YouTube is its own brand. The company has like kept it that way. You know, I, I addressed like a little interesting bit of history in the book about like why it's not actually a separate alphabet company, but it, you know, it still remains part of Google. It, the, the, the YouTube founders left pretty early and while I think they had like they had strong feelings about the site, obviously, like it wasn't quite the same. You know, I, I don't think there was that much tension. Um, certainly, like they didn't love aspects of of Google, but you didn't see the same like Facebook. I, I think in, in Facebook's case, right, like Instagram was ascendant in a way that like Google Search has never had that problem, right? And like Google Search is like a, is, is a utility that's not really going away. Uh, and so it's not like they need to depend on YouTube as their next stage of growth. Like search as business is is still growing at phenomenal rates. Uh, so I think that's probably the key difference. I think with with Google search and with YouTube search, the the truth is probably that the algorithm is king. It it really kind of sets those businesses up to succeed and keeps them strong. And you know, on the user side, you know, when you're going to your YouTube homepage, you're getting content that they expect you to have highly relevant to you and make you watch more, make you stick around longer. Uh, it's kind of a flip on its head from the idea of, of content being king or, or really the audience being king, which is kind of more, more traditional media. I see where we're going with, with TikTok and the algorithm driving so much. Do, do you think that that is just the content future that we need to be ready for almost no matter what platform it is, the, the algorithm is king? It certainly seems that way. You know, there's that you use that phrase, the audience is is king, and like the example that YouTube 
brings up it's like oh the algorithm is just the audience right that's sort of the line that they'll they'll use which i think is like half right in the sense that like the algorithm is like we are sort of as viewers like dictating what's being shown to us in some ways based on our prior watching behavior right and the algorithm sort of rewarding like what the audience wants like i mentioned earlier i think like, like the other side of that is is that creators are like in this sort of w weird like dance with the platform where they're trying to uh, like appeal to this sort of algorithm and and in, in many ways like there's a there's several examples from youtube's history where it like totally spun out of control in a way that like wasn't great for creators wasn't great for the company wasn't great for advertisers and got them into just like serious trouble i do think there are certain areas now like where certainly on youtube and i at tiktok will move in this direction like current events like news events right like they have even when they're sort of algorithmically curated like YouTube has a much heavier hand in those cases. It's just like thinking, I, I mean, if you look like the recent FBI, right? If you were to like go on YouTube and look at FBI Trump, if you like, uh, when, when, uh, when that happened in August, you were going to see just like vetted uh, news channels uh, at the top of the sort. And it's become very, very hard to find anything that's not like a vetted sort of uh, well-known uh, news channel. And that's something, and I think you've seen that with coronavirus, right? Uh, with like healthcare, YouTube has become much more aggressive, and I think that's a different way of curating content, of a sort of um, a different sort of algorithmic world than the, the the other categories of of content. One thing that I think is kind of fascinating, and your the title of your book hits this exactly: the idea of like, comment, subscribe, is that the the inputs on the creator side are somewhat known by the audience. You know, we we know that these things like views, like likes, like comments, subscriptions are things that help creators. And there's this transparency that that creators approach that with the the how content is being surfaced to us is still a little bit of a black box on the the algorithm side and the platform side though. Yeah, I think that, you know, YouTube's made some attempts to communicate this. I think some of them are kind of been, been clumsy and I read about them in the in the book you know, some of it is like the you know, like sort of AI experts talk about this the black box algorithms that like and, and machine learning systems are, are effectively like making uh, uh, making predictions and like like pattern recognition in ways that that are designed for us to really not understand. Um, so I think there's there's an element of that, uh, and that's certainly been like the the neural network that has been in, involved in like in, in YouTube for so I think going back to like 2015 or so. You know, I think that that's certainly like where we're seeing in Europe, especially, and even the U.S. Right, and like Elon Musk has talked a lot about this, like algorithmic transparency. It's like very unclear what that looks like, right? Like, if if Google one day were to say, like, oh, look, here's like open source their code for the YouTube algorithm, like most, myself included, most people wouldn't be able like, to understand <laughs> to decipher that, right? Yeah. And so I think that that's been the defense. I mean, YouTube will always say, like, the reason we don't share this stuff is because we don't want bad actors to sort of exploit these holes, which I think is kind of a, a flimsy excuse. Um, I, I think, the, you know, a, an interesting just perspective on that is like just the, the API that, that YouTube could give access to the researchers. So they're started to, I think it was earlier this summer, YouTube started to, to share more data. And this has been a consistent criticism from researchers that like part of the reason we so much there's so much a lot of scrutiny on Facebook and Twitter is is for like all the obvious you know failings of, of the platforms but because in some ways there's like it's a little more accessible to researchers and some of that is just text versus video like text is so much easier to navigate and understand and like parse as data and video is harder and YouTube's been pretty reluctant to 
to share. I think maybe that that's going to change. And so I, that might be like, to me, that's interesting. I mean, research, academic research takes like a long time. And so it might be moving too slowly, but that'll be really something interesting to, to follow, like how much YouTube is forced to be trans, more transparent than it's been. It's said often, but I, but I think it's true. Like the the last fifteen or so years, really, really the aughts were kind of a a wild west period uh, on on the internet. I mean, both in terms of content, in terms of moderation, but also in terms of how these these internet properties acted. The consolidation that happened. What do you think? We'll look back on this and and think about this period. Oh yeah, I mean, there was a. I, I have this this line in, in the book. I'll tease it. That's from a that's from a YouTube employee that was. It's uh, like we'll look back on this period as sort of uh, cars before seatbelt laws. I think that's, I think that to me that that reads pretty true, right? In some ways, you know, I think the analogy kind of falls apart in the sense that like there it is, like you know, with with their seatbelt laws, don't have to deal with like political political issues and like political speech, which is like very complicated. And like I think this is an this is in defense of the platforms. Like I, I think they should have seen this coming in some ways, but like they didn't. And like these things, these things around like how do you define hate speech and how do you define incitement to violence uh, when it abuts like contemporary politics is incredibly hard. I think that what YouTube, it'll be interesting. Like I think this is a period that the major thing that's changed in YouTube, and I think that other platforms too are going to. You have more levers to pull than just like this content gets to live on the internet or it doesn't, right? Like YouTube has started to do things like put things in the recommendation, like remove things from recommendations, right? Um, remove monetization. Like they ha- basically, they have all these different tools to be able to kind of give, treat content on gradients. And I think that's going to be the future. And, and some of that is to our conversation around like transparency. Like when a video is removed from recommendations, it's not like you see it, not like you're watching a video and they're like, this video was treated, you know, this treated as like borderline content that we decided not to recommend to viewers, right? Like they're not doing that. Uh, they're adding the kind of fact check labels, kind of like Twitter and Facebook, but but that's a step where I think is uh, I don't know if they would ever make that step. I think that the second part of the of the uh, the Wild West era that's now kind of coming back to haunt them is like outside the U.S., uh, where you have um, in places like India and Brazil and Russia like huge YouTube audiences and governments that are like cracking down pretty hard on dissent and like sort of using this language about fake news and misinformation to push platforms to remove videos that are critical of the government. And YouTube sort of backed itself into a corner. I think YouTube of the past may have said like, screw you, like we're gonna keep this video up. Google is a much bigger, more conservative company and YouTube is a bigger business. And so they're met like in places like India, they're not gonna back out of India. I mean, we're seeing right now they're, they're, they're not operating their business in Russia, but YouTube is still operational in Russia, which is fascinating. It's the only like, internet service that the Western internet service basically still operating. Before I let you go, I'm guessing you've spent a lot of time on YouTube writing the book, and I'm guessing that you weren't working 100% of the time. <laughs> Are there any channels or creators that you'd recommend for our listeners? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I, I uh, Matt Pat is one of my favorite. He has game theorist and film theorist, and I'm like a big, become during the pandemic, watching a lot of movies. Uh, so film theorist is one of my favorites. I'm also during the pandemic, I've become like a big uh, NBA fan. I don't know if I'm, I'm sure there's probably some overlap. Uh, there's a great channel called Thinking Basketball. And I'm just, I like eat up every single basketball video that, that he makes. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. 
and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.